into Natchez Glen House stories, again, people, again, this happens in this story. My guest this week is someone whose work I have followed for a while. I know she used to work at Conard Pyle. I know I know a fair amount. It's one of those Kevin Bacon, six degrees of separation kind of moments that the two of us have not spoken before, but here we are. My guest for this week is Angela Treadwell-Palmer. Angela, you do something that I think is really important, and we're going to get to another layer of why it's important in a moment, but in many ways, you are the bridge between hybridizer, grower, garden center, gardener in bringing new plants to the universe with your company, Plants Nouveau. Give us just sort of a brief outline of what Plants Nouveau is and a little bit of like how the process works. You you go from here to all the way into a, a consumer's garden with your product. Yeah. Well, if you, most people, even my parents don't really understand what I do. Um, I'm, I'm a horticulturist and landscape designer by training and sort of fell into the new plant world by working at Connor Pyle. And they just sort of stuck me into the new plants and it stuck. So it was great for me because it combined landscape design and art, which I had had to have taken a lot of classes from my landscape design degree and horticulture and being outside and science. So it was a great combination. So I've always appreciated all of the things that I get to do owning Plants Nouveau. It's a company that if you look at musicians, they have agents. So every time one of their songs gets played, they get a royalty for it. Plants are the same way. So we work with plant breeders who come up with new inventions, whether it's a new color or a new size or something that's more disease resistant or even something that can propagate more easily. But no consumer is ever going to understand that. We call those the non-sexy introductions. But to a nurseryman, it means the world. So every time one of those plants gets sold, we collect money from it. And that money goes back to the breeder. So in a way, we're a plant breeder's agent. And that's what we call ourselves. We also do marketing. We also do plant patents and trademarks to protect the inventions. And then we spend a whole heck of a lot of time just getting people interested, talking to nurserymen. I have Skype calls every uh, week for the next couple months at... Um, 11 and 1 with all of my licensees because of this horrible uh, COVID issue that we can't actually go visit them and entice them with new plans. But that's a big part of the job. Well, I, and I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing that you bring up there, Angela. And it's something we've talked about on the podcast a lot is the work of the, the grower, the breeder nursery side of plants is really all encompassing. Before we started recording, we were talking about the area of the world that I live in, area of the world that you live in, that sometimes, I'll be kind here, Angela, and say sometimes the job for them is so all-encompassing, the communication has not been a strong suit all the time of the world of gardening and horticulture. Is that how you sort of feel about it occasionally as well? Oh, absolutely. Especially when you're working with breeders from different parts of the world. And they look at the U.S. as this huge place with a lot of people. But what they don't realize, especially someone coming from, say, Australia. So lots of great plants come out of Australia, but the majority of them can only grow in southern to middle north uh, um, California. 
because that's the same climate as Australia. And they, they don't understand that we can't sell millions and millions of plants because they really won't grow in most parts of the country. So yeah, they, they live in their own world. They love all of their babies. So it's really hard for them to choose. And their sense of reality is a bit off. Even, even the breeders in the Netherlands, they think it's cold over there. Okay. It's not cold. I think the coldest it is, is, is a cold zone eight. And so when they say something's hardy, they have no idea what they're talking about. Yes. Well, and, and I, it's interesting you say that, that it, it's their own world sometimes. And I have often used this comparative that to be a good grower, many times you are truly head down because it is tough. It's tough work. You're taking care of these plants. Mother nature is involved and you don't always lift your head up to sort of see the landscape of the business side that is in front of you is part of what you're doing. Cause I have to imagine you, you try to source or you have maybe even people who approach you who they don't really have maybe a great understanding of the marketing and business side of the plant world. Do you have people at that scale where, where sometimes you're, you're handholding and trying to get them to look up at the market a little bit more to maybe become a little bit more broader perspective on where plants and gardening are at right now? Absolutely. We have, I would say most of those types of breeders are a smaller either nurserymen or horticulturists that are finding things in their backyard or making crosses in their tiny little greenhouse. And they love all of the plants and they come up with some really great plants. But knowing how many plants it takes, especially for my side of the business, which is the herbaceous plants, the perennials and annuals, uh, how many it takes to sell to even pay for a plant patent, it, you're talking 25,000 plants, which doesn't seem like a lot. But when you come up with something that me being a plant geek would want in my garden, it's never going to make it into Lowe's or Home Depot or Costco or any of the other places that sell lots of plants. It's going to go through a specialty mail order nursery. And they do not understand the difference between a really cool plant that a plant geek would want in their garden and something that the average consumer is going to buy because it looks pretty in a pot that day at a retail garden center. Isn't that a really big change for a lot of folks too? You brought up the the two French stores, Loess and Omdepas, <laughs> that the – I think what you just said, Angela, is one of the least talked about things in the horticultural world, that the shift of both of those retailers, big box retailers, having so much influence has changed the landscape of the market and Absolutely. that I think I see this in some other lanes and in particular because of the social media influence of so many things now I, I don't think people have a very realistic view of the actual scale of some of these specialty nurseries um, recently we had Karen Perkins on from Garden Vision Epimediums who's a great person and grows incredible epimediums but what we talked about in our conversation was it's a struggle bus to do something that she's doing, 
right? It, it's not like you're going to have the brand new Elon Musk Tesla 77 in your driveway necessarily. Um, how do you we balance that, right? That there are these awesome plants, but it's tough. It's tough to introduce those. Does that fall on like, you know, no pressure, Angela, but people like yourself, people like myself to just to communicate more about these, you know, really cool plants that we would maybe plant geek out to and to try to broaden the market a little bit, because otherwise won't we just have a lot of the same stuff that the market absorbs more easily? Yeah, so there's there's definitely two different roads, I like to say. So the first road is the breeders who are breeding for those French stores, as you say. They have to be a specific size. Everything has to be less than two feet tall unless it's I'm so sorry, a shrub. Um, and even then, they want them to be less than two feet tall. And that's all because of how many plants can fit on a shipping rack. They also have to be a pot full of beautiful flowers when they get to the retail center. So there's no guessing. There's no waiting for it to grow. It's like an annual. So even perennials and shrubs need to be this beautiful, perfect package. And there are breeding companies all over the world that are only breeding for that because they know that's where the numbers are. Then you have this other road that we like to explore as well. And I always say, Figuring out the path for the plant is the hardest part. So I get this amazing gallardia that doesn't look like a, a muffin. It doesn't look like a, a mum in full bloom. And it's not this perfect little meatball plant covered in flowers, but it's a beautiful garden plant that was found by Rosemary Hardy and one Chelsea. And, you know, but that's never going to go into a pot for Home Depot or Lowe's because it won't look like that on the retail shelf, which is really all they care about. But there are new adventures popping up everywhere with all of these designers that are planting large landscape plugs and smaller pots, people like Pat Kalina and Pete Aldoff's style and Adam Woodruff and a bunch of actually my friends who are pretty famous landscape designers that are specifying plants in deep plugs so they can plant hundreds of them on a job. That's where we take that kind of plant because we know they want a garden plant. They don't want a monarda that grows 12 inches tall and blooms all at once because that's not going to help their garden design. It's it's, so, yeah. it's great that you share that because I've been having this conversation in Instagram lives all this week and I think people are a bit taken back by this. I've made a comment in the last two, three weeks as I'm doing a massive remodel here to all two acres that some of the newer introductions are, as you said, meatballs. They're just so God roundy moundy. Like there's, <laughs> there's no movement to them. There's, there's this almost rigidness that some of the introductions have, which as you pointed out is great if you're trying to sell it in a one gallon container, but in the, the kind of design that you're talking about, it doesn't have the movement. It doesn't have the texture and the layering and the scale that maybe you're expecting from that plant. And I, I feel like that's sort of an interesting contrast right now that I want to get your opinion on. Uh, people like Pete Udolph and, and his work and so many others that you mentioned, it's very, very popular. Very, very, you know, everyone agrees, wow, that's fantastic. But yet the plants that we're seeing at the garden centers to the consumer level don't look like that 
and and won't in many cases look like that. Like like how do we balance that? Because the consumer is seeing those same images of those gardens, but yet the plants that they're being offered are not those plants. Well, and the other problem is I've I, I know um, lots of designers have issues where people want to design. Even some of those same people, people want to design. They want to go out and buy the plants themselves. Well, they can't because we don't sell flats of deep plugs in a garden center. So if you wanted to plant, a, you know, a 10 by 20 space and you needed 50 Carex whatever, you can't afford to go buy that at a garden center. And you would never find 50 of anything at a garden center. It's, it's really tough. Maybe Pacassandra plugs, but that's about it. So there's a whole new world opening up where some of these growers who were typically perennial liner growers are offering these deep plugs. So it's like a four inch tall plug by two inches that you can plant right in the ground. And then you can afford to buy 50 of them because they're $2 a piece instead of $14.99 a piece. And that's a problem I see with that type of landscape becoming so popular is that the consumer can't really go out and buy all of those plants on their own without going broke, but they want it. And everyone's fascinated by it. And yet you're right. The the little tiny meatball monardas and the six inch tall echinaceas are never going to cut it in that kind of a garden. Plus you'd also have to plant 15 of them in one spot to get the same effect that you'd have with three regular size echinaceas. So I definitely see this, this fork in the road where we go one way for really cool garden plants and we go another way for plants that are meant to be sold in that 18 inch rectangular space on the shelf at one of the chain stores. And it's tough. It really is, right? Because it, it's so fascinating when you talk about some of the plants, uh, you know, something simple like Calamintha is not really a garden center, especially not a big box store plant, but yet it's pretty ubiquitous in a lot of the kind of work that we're seeing now. Right. Um, and it's the perennial plant of the year next year, yes. which I find fascinating. <laughs> yes, right? And that was... Love it. I just planted like a hundred in my garden. Well, but so, so I planted a hundred because it's a filler. Exactly. And it gives it's that light floral textural component that's also a tough plant that that, that, that does and performs very well. How right. so what let's let's pick on Calamintha for a second, because this is a good test subject of this conversation. So do you in your role at Plants Nouveau, do you say, okay? Calamintha. Now, as far as I'm aware, Angela, feel free to correct me. I'm only aware of Calamintha nepeta and Calamintha nepeta white cloud, which is pretty similar to Calamintha nepeta. Um, is anybody working on them? Is anybody breeding them to you know to, to increase color range, to increase bloom time, to increase disease resistance? Uh, do you go from that place where you go, okay, that's a popular plant. Is there anybody out there working on it? I guarantee someone is. I would bet $500 on the fact that Walter's Gardens is probably working on it. And they will come up with red flowers and purple flowers. I, I don't know how they do it out there. It's it's amazing. But I, I would bet money on the fact that someone is working on it and possibly a breeder who never even knew that that plant existed. 
that's what's so fascinating too because the breeder is suddenly i was uh chuck pavlich from terra nova was on recently as well and you know they, he was explaining how they try to reverse engineer some problems with particular plants but then you have a, a plant like calamintha which doesn't have a lot of inherent problems per se but it could you know maybe the color range could be expanded um you know and then do we find ourselves in the next conversation angela which is another question for you is something like nepeta uh you know close related lesser or greater mint they would argue the two horrible common names people this is why we stay botanical taxonomic okay because now you're calling something lesser i mean how rude is that i mean that's the rudest thing you could say exactly it's the the rudest thing you could say you could be like oh you're the lesser cat mint so with something like nepeta we go from uh walker's low and like blue hill giant whatever the other one was which were on the market as like mainstays for decades and decades. And now all of a sudden, there's tons of Napata. Everyone's got Napata. Napata, 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 everywhere. How do we manage that part of it where we get so many of a particular species that now almost the market is confusing for people? Well, and honestly, unless you know something about plants, I I disagree with you that it's confusing for people because they're only going to see one or two of them at a garden center. It's confusing for people who are buying plants for garden centers and people who are trying to figure out which ones to propagate for the liner nurseries and the wholesale growers, because who do they buy from? There are so many lookalikes and what it really comes down to is very similar to how it works in the annual world is Whatever rep stops by your nursery or spends the most time with you who has a nice nepeta, that's the one that you buy. And it's sad because that's how it works with a lot of plants that are lookalikes. And you could have something that's a little bit better, that grows better, that doesn't have to be deadheaded. Like we have a nepeta that is fantastic. You could just put Walker's Low in the trash right now and never grow it again. But there are so many others out there that are in with the big companies like Ball and Syngenta and places that sell unrooted cuttings by the millions to liner growers all over the country that it's just in their lineup. And so that one will get chosen because it's easy. It's easy for the grower to say, okay, Ball, what do you have? Give me a list. I need a Nepeta. I need this. I need that. And they take it all from Ball. So it is, it's a, it's a wretched world to compete in right now. I have, I'm going to spring a question on you from a comment I saw you make on another piece of content that is going to, I think, piggyback on what you just said. So for those of you that don't know, I want you to put yourself in the role of any business, right? This is not unique to the plant world. We could be talking medical sales, pharmaceutical sales. We could be talking, uh, I don't know, nuts and bolts sales. I don't know what you call a nuts and bolts salesperson, but I'm sure it's fascinating. So. In the nursery world, you've had a lot of very old businesses, uh, a predominantly male industry, and you had, you know, for lack of a better term here, I'll use a vernacular of a bit of a good old boys network sometimes, right? Like, you know, oh, that's that's good old Bob who works for good old blah, blah, blah as a broker, as an in-house sales rep, whatever it might be. And as you just explained, he may have Walker's Low, and you've been buying Walker's Low nap at a poor Walker's Low. We're just crushing it here, Angela, in this conversation. Um, you may have been buying that. 
Walker's love. Yeah. Well, and, and you, you, you may have been buying that plant from good old Bob for 25 years and you just keep on buying it because, you know, it's good old Bob and, you know, occasionally you and Bob, he takes you out for lunch or whatever the case is. Your role, um, with a female perspective on plants and on the business side of some of what you're talking about, what has that been been like for you? Have you seen some of that where it's just like, hey, I'm I'm presenting something to you that is just a better product, but because you've known Bob for 25 years, you're just that relationship is what's influencing your purchasing decisions and not your the plant quality sometimes. Absolutely. I've been dealing with it my whole career. Um, the one thing that I think I have and my business partner also has is that we are not just brokers. We are not just salespeople. We are absolute diehard gardeners. And I have a degree in ornamental horticulture. And so there is a difference to someone who's just showing you a picture and telling you about a plant and someone who can is describe that plant inside and out, has grown it in their garden, can show you pictures of it in their garden and will send you samples so that you can put it side by side with the other plant. And therefore, it might take five years for them to get excited about it. But that's kind of how we have to work. It's almost backwards. I remember when the knockout rose came out. All I had to do was tell people it was disease resistant and show them a picture. And there were orders for a million when hot papaya cold flower came out, which was the first orange double. You know, we had orders for a million. That doesn't work that way anymore. There's just too much competition. And so, yeah, it's all about relationships. And we have to, as women, work really hard. Now, my business partner is a good bit older than I am, so she's been around these good old boys for a long time and and does well with them and they respect her for her plant knowledge but i think that's sort of the missing link is a lot of these brokers couldn't tell you any more than is written on their spec sheet about the plant and we've lived them and so we try to really play that up in writing and in lectures and in talking to people and, and that's so important because for so many years, it, it was a lot of those brokers because as everyone knows who's ever heard me talk about this subject, I experienced that for quite a few years firsthand in, as a, on the grower side of things. You're growing these awesome, fascinating plants that you believe are spectacular. And as you said, you know them intimately. And then you have a broker in between who's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they've got something over here. And you're like, no, 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 no. It's not just something over there. You got to talk to the people about the thing because it's a very <laughs> important thing because we spend a lot of time on this thing and you should be communicating about said thing. And yeah. that that challenge, I think, is one of the things we try to explore in the podcast is getting great plants in the, in the hands of gardeners, broaden the perspective of a little bit of everybody. How do you think and do you feel currently that is that getting better? Is it getting worse? Where are we at with it? Because I, I think historically it, it has been a problem. Um, what's your your temperature gauge on where it's at today? Well, I think I understand your question. Are you talking about breaking Just into getting the getting people to, to to getting these good plants, breaking through a little bit of these like you know tired plants that have been out there because of those good old boy relationships. 
trying to get the best plants that we can in the hands of the end user slash gardener. Okay, so two things. I think we've realized that one of the things we really have to do is sort of, you know, snuggle up to the brokers because they will come across pretty regularly. A customer that says, I don't want to buy anything from Ball or I don't want to buy anything from Syngenta or I don't want to buy anything from whoever. And they want another line of plants to be able to present to them. So keeping in close contact with them and giving them as much information as you possibly can so that they have an alternative to share with the customer who wants something different is really important. And the other thing is not only do all the brokers, but most of the garden center buyers and anybody who is a perennial grower or a woody plant grower or the person who buys stuff for those, the inputs for those nurseries, they're all touring the public trial gardens, especially at the universities where it's free to visit them, like Ohio State, Penn State, Colorado State, uh, down in Dallas at the Dallas Arboretum, um, the Chicago Botanic Garden, any of those trial sites, we try to put all of our plants there so that they are there planted with everybody else's and people can see them. And that seems to be our two latest strategies besides talking them up on social media and trying to be as proactive as as we can with consumers. Um, I think that's a good approach right now. I I feel one thing that's been interesting in the last two years for me is there is a consumer. I have a, a massive theory, Angela, of all of this, that we've dumbed down gardening too much and we've taken all of the cool things out of it and everything became low maintenance in the last 30 years and we've we've lost a lot of people because of that because so much of the nuance of what is gardening is what makes plants and gardening great. So when you take that away, you sort of are left with a lesser shell of what it used to be. But I think the consumer is very much into it long format. Our, the, the podcast has been really successful in the last year and a half. And we have these kind of conversations you and I are having right now, Angela. Where does that go, right? How do we break out of what was historically, uh, I'm going to be kind here, people. I'm going to be kind, kind, kindness. A little bit of a stodgy approach to gardening media, gardening content, and and talk directly to the end gardener in maybe a little bit more of an authentic way than maybe we have over the years? I think videos, especially live um, on Instagram, live on Facebook, even TikToks, all of that stuff is where everybody else is going to talk to consumers. And I don't think enough of us are doing that. I know I always think, oh, I have to you know, take a shower and fix my hair. No one cares. Just go out and make the dang video. People love it. Every time I do it, people love it. And it's one of the greatest posts. And I think we're missing a real opportunity by trying to make the perfect videos, trying to make sure the plants look perfect. No one cares. They just want to hear somebody real talking about a plant. And that's really important right now in today's society is that affirmation that it's a great plant and here look at it i love this and this is why i love it and it takes us a little bit out of the the what i would argue has failed the top five list fill in the blank kind of approach to it which feels a little bit just dated 
at this point. And I don't know if it really translates the message of like gardening. It, it just, it sort of, it creates a commodity by the fact that it's commoditized content almost. All right, let's go in this direction because you have, a, I was going through the Plants Nouveau website and I'm like, that is cool. That is cool. That is cool. That is cool. There's a lot of that was cool that was said. Talk to me about a group of plants, and this this line that you have has actually been uh, been out in the market for a little bit, but is with the woodland anemones with the fantasy series. How did that come to be? Like, how did you bring that particular collection together? That came from one of our friends in the Netherlands it has a relationship with the breeder from Japan, and there was a series called the Pretty Lady series that came out. And they weren't super vigorous. They were very similar, but they weren't super vigorous. So the breeder went back to the drawing board and came up with the first three that we have, which are Pocahontas, Cinderella, and... Um, Jasmine. Jasmine. No, Jasmine's a new one. So Damn. maybe it was just... Okay, so it was Pocahontas and Cinderella. They were the first two. And um, they were still great plants. They're hardy. They bloom tons, but they're tiny, tiny plants. And so people were trying to put them in their gardens and they'd have to, like I said, with the six in Jaganesia, they would have to plant 15 of them to get an, any kind of flower display out of them because they, they stay tiny. So what we realized was over in Europe, these are sold as gift plants. They are sold in a pot at the grocery store at the checkout. And so they were meant to be this tiny little package. So then we, everybody loved those plants, but they were like, can we just get something a little bit bigger that's going to get bigger as it stays in the garden, like a normal perennial, where these would just stay that size. So then we got Belle and Jasmine, and those are a little bit bigger. They multiply a little bit more like an anemone should, meaning the clump gets a little bit wider every year. And they're still compact enough for a small space. So they are actually taking off. And then Red Riding Hood, which is the darker one, has really been taken off. I think that's the one we sell the most of right now, currently. But yeah, so they came from a sort of failed first set of introductions. They moved and switched um, agents and came to us and they're still disappointed even though we sell tons of them that we're not selling millions of them because they are sold by the millions as they say trolleys full in Europe because like I said they're sold at the grocery store so it's a completely different use for this type of plant that we think of as a garden plant here in the states and so we're now trying to pursue that road with these as well to try and get these into that market that will send them to the grocery stores and on a big rack to Costco. And um, so it's, it's just, every plant is a project. Well, and, and it's also a group that is relatively confusing to people as well, right? The, the anemone family for a lot of people is the, the flower, the cut flower world, the Mediterranean anemones, Blanda and that group. And here we have this, I think there's two things that are attached for most people with anemone. If you knew them, you might have known them as a relatively aggressive, sometimes heavy foliage, light on flower in the tomentosa groups and some mm -hmm. of the early species that were out there. And that was your experience. Or you didn't know them at all and you just confused them with the spring one. You know, it's like where you're like, oh, it's an anemone. What's that? Who cares? Um, 
how do you you go about that? Does that get back to the trial garden subject that you're talking about? Because I think every I have a lot of anemones confession, Angela, like a lot. Like I might have all of them. Um, there's the one of the Swan series out of Scotland that I still don't have. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's the, the. We have a new one of those coming. Do you? When is that coming to my house, Angela? Oh, well, it's been really hard in tissue culture. It's called Frilly Knickers. It has such a great name. So it's a, it's like Swan, but it has a purple back and it's truly double. Wow. So that one should be coming probably in two years. See, because um, what the only of the Swans I don't have, I believe, is Dreaming Swan. Which is okay. the double that's a little bit taller. I have ruffled, I have yeah, dainty, I have elephant. Consistently more double and a smaller plant. It's only about knee high. See, this is fantastic, people. This is what we're yeah. talking about, right? Like we so how do you balance that? Because okay, as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong again, the fantasy series was a pretty well known in the industry at least, collection of anemone. But now in the last three years, there's suddenly a lot of anemone showing up on the scene, right? How do you, again, like take it from two, I want you to take it from two angles, angle A. How do you get your direct business to business client to say our anemone and not that other one? And then how do we, again, communicate that to, to gardeners? Because this is sort of an underknown group of plants to begin with. It's really hard. So even for us, our largest perennial breeder in the Netherlands, which is where we get a lot of the coneflower, all of the coneflowers, the Menardas, um, the Heleniums, a lot of our biggest groups, he started working on anemones and they look very similar to the fantasy series. And he got actually really pissed off at me because we wouldn't drop those and pick his up. And I was like, you know, we just can't do that. That's not how it works. We are loyal to the people that we take on. And um, the, the fantasy series has been great. It's, it's hard though, because with anemones, you could walk through, and I think I walked through a hectare field of anemone seedlings. There's not a huge amount of diversity. So they're all going to look very similar. And it's just, again, it's going to come down to relationships and people having actually grown them at their nursery. Sometimes it just takes, it takes growing it to love it. And that's why it's so important to get samples out and to get people to take them home and put them in their garden or put them in a trial garden where they take their salespeople through. It's so, so important for stuff like this. But yeah, so it often happens with a group of plants where you come up with a great group of plants like our broderas that were better than anybody's. They live longer. They don't get the nematodes. They're they're amazingly better than Jack Frost and, and Looking Glass. And now it's been probably five, eight years and everybody has a brunera now. So you've got to hope that your plant stands the test of time. And it's hard. It's not easy. I don't have an easy answer. Yeah. And, and it really is. It's interesting because the nursery industry, as I often joke with uh, Alan Armitage when he's on, we don't do a great job always talking to the customer. We're really good at talking with each other, right? Yeah. We have a lot of acronym associations. So because of that, yeah. we're all familiar with something happening. But then everybody goes, what's a Brunnera? A who? Right. A what? Exactly. I was just on a, a happy hour PPA virtual thing for the Perennial Plant Association. And we were talking about just that. Like every one of us was so excited about all the new plants. 
and we all said at the same time, yeah, but a consumer has no idea what's new, what's, you know, it's just so they see what they see at a garden center and nobody's really telling them anything about it. And it's up to them to decide if they want to take it home. Let's jump into hydrangea because I feel uh-huh. like that is something. Um, I'm going to shout out Michael Durr here. What's up, Dr. Yeah. Durr? Um, it feels like it went one of two ways, right? So we had hydrangea macrophyllas, for those of you following along, not playing the Latin botanical game. Shame on you, firstly. Secondarily, uh, we're talking about mop head, French mop head, whatever your commonality name of choice is, that uh, we swung from that to hydrangea paniculata in yeah. like a big way, like the biggest yeah. way humanly possible. So everything in, in breeding in the last 20 years has been panicle hydrangea, panicle hydrangea, panicle hydrangea. But I saw that you've got some introductions that are coming or are on the market that are macrophylla. Where where do they fit in? What's changed in macrophylla that made you excited about those? Well, having visited the Netherlands so many times, I realized, and, and this has been an amazing research project, the whole hydrangea world. So it's a mess. And over there, like I said, zone eight. So everything grows and blooms and they have highlight and they have super long days. So everything is gorgeous. And that's where most of the introductions have come from until Spring Meadows started breeding their own stuff in the U.S. Um, So what's happened is we've realized that the United States is a big place with many different climates. And even someone like me, who's a great gardener, takes care of my plants, I know what to do, I cannot get a hydrangea macrophylla to bloom. And I live in zone six. So if I go to the coast, everything is in bloom there. But I live 10 minutes from the coast and nothing will bloom for me no matter what I do. So I think what the breeders have realized is that paniculatas will bloom for anyone. They're hardy to zone three. They will bloom in Alabama. They will bloom in Canada. They will bloom everywhere in between. And so what they're trying to do is make them a more manageable size. Now, they've gone a bit too far in some cases. I've seen hydrangea paniculatas that are 18 inches tall. And I think that takes away from the whole point of having a hydrangea paniculata. And they also haven't come up with anything that's a different color. The best they can do is get them to age to pink faster by breeding them with varieties that age to pink faster, which means those white cones turn that wonderful mauvey pink in the fall. But now they're getting them to do that in August, which is really amazing. But they won't do it in the South because it's too hot at night. So there's all of these things that go into it. And the other factor with the macrophyllas is that in most parts of the world, they're sold as gift plants. They do have them as garden plants and people can plant them in the garden, but it's a huge market here just to sell them from Christmas to Mother's Day and sell them in the gift plant market. And the Dutch know how to grow them so that they are a pot full of flowers and they don't look like the woody plant hydrangeas do when you see them in a garden center where they might have two flowers on them, three at best. We're talking 10, 12, 20 flowers because of the way they pinch them and pre-cool them and bring them out of dormancy. So they make this beautiful presentation, but yet we're still having problems. Even the plants that say they bloom on new wood, depends on how far the internodes are between the leaves for them to get 
five to seven sets of leaves before they produce a flower in a climate like mine, we run out of summer. So it's a, it's a science project. It really is. And it's tough when people complain. And that's the biggest complaint we get is that the hydrangeas don't bloom. And they're talking about the macrophyllum. That's it. That's it. Yeah. And it, it really, what you said is one of the real key distinctions. We, before we were recording, we we're talking about the Pacific Northwest. How do you navigate that? Because what you're, what you're talking about with the Netherlands, with Holland, some of the other parts of Northern Europe where a lot of breeding is done, a lot of the large scale nursery production in the States is in the Pacific Northwest. And those two places are Goldilocks areas, right? Oh, yeah. Like it's just not even close to what yeah. most of us experience. Like, how do you navigate that when you're looking for new selections, right? Because I, I would have to assume you have some examples of some plants that you were excited about. Maybe when you go over to Europe and you tour somebody's field or they show you something interesting, but then you put it in one of the trial gardens here in you know, Dallas or wherever it might be, Chicago, and just the plant just doesn't make it. I mean, it, how challenging is that part of it or disappointing even sometimes? It is. Uh, the perfect example is actually one of my favorite plants, which actually grows well for me, but I live further north. It's Eryngium Neptune's gold. So it's the first yellow leaved um, Eryngium. And it came from Wales. And of course, it's perfect up there as well. And it was introduced in the, U uh, the UK. It was on the short list for a winner at Chelsea. I mean, it's an amazing plant, but it doesn't like heat and humidity. So it definitely wouldn't grow well for you. It doesn't do well in the mid-Atlantic. It does really well in the top shoulders of the united states and like you know michigan toronto those areas all people think it's cold in michigan and in in ontario canada but it's really not that cold and they get really long days and they get lots of snow to cover up their plants so it's actually a better climate there than it is for me in um in massachusetts where i'm a cold zone um, warmer. So it's very interesting that that plant loves where I live. It loves the Pacific Northwest and it loves those areas that have um, cooler nights in the summertime because it will turn brown and get scorched anywhere else. And it was one of those beautiful plants. And people think of eryngium as being, oh, this is drought tolerant plant. It looks like a thistle. It's really not. It wants to have perfect soil and cool nights. That is, so, that is, I'm so glad to hear you say that, Angela, because when we were talking up the mediums a couple of episodes ago now, it was the same problem. People are like dry shade, dry shade, dry shade. And you're like, well, not so, so much. I mean, they're a little establishment, but in, I think, Eryngium or another one that you've, like you said, that's how you hear them sort of talked about in this generality. And then when you start talking about some of the North American species that are getting popular, that's a whole other different conversation. Totally different beast. Yeah. But let's move into hellebore for a second here. We're going to go a little quick here as we start to wrap up. I just want to get your your general take on the plant, the introductions that you've worked with on them. Um, the hellebores were something that in this last like 15, 20 years as well, a ton of breeding has taken place. What people went and got, hellebores orientalis, hellebores hybrida, hellebores niger, started doing a lot of crossing work to get the upward facing stems, all of that. 
what has been the thing with Hellebores for you that has excited you recently? Recently, our breeder in Belgium, although we're not representing these varieties, he has a bunch of orientalis that are coming from tissue culture. So that means um, they were typically growing from seeds. So you never knew what you'd get. You'd see those mixes out there where some were green, some were double, some were pink, some were black. Now they've been able to isolate them in tissue culture and make, if you want a white spotted double, you can get 10,000 of them. So that's a really amazing uh, just um, development in hellebores that's never happened before. I also think the the Niger cores, which is a cross between Niger and Corsica, is the foliage of those is so beautiful. And so hellebores bloom really early, most parts of the country, but the foliage stays up and they're so tough and they they don't really look bad. You have to cut it down. I mean, it doesn't really look bad even in the winter. So to have that beautiful foliage with the speckles and spots and stripes and modeling of silver on top of it has really made them a four season plant. Is that going to be a plant that is a little bit difficult to get some of the, the genetics essentially out of Europe? Because as you mentioned earlier with some other plants, a lot of the Helleborus niger are sold as container plants like around the holidays for like almost indoor plant use in Europe. And that's not really an on-trend thing here in the United States. We're working on it. We have one called Mont Blanc um, and it is the perfect plant for the holidays. Yeah, every table in every house in Germany at Christmas time has a white hellebore on it. We don't like white hellebores. We actually don't like white flowers here very much, which is unfortunate. But um crazy trying- though because people like them when they see them in well-done gardens. You notice they this do. Angela? Yeah. And at, in in the evening when they're walking around their garden with their glass of wine, they can see the white flowers. L- let me let me pause you on that comment. So do you think one of the differences sometimes, and maybe this is confusing to some of the European breeders that you work with and growers, America is very focused on the flower. There's a lot of pressure on the flower versus maybe a more sophisticated view of gardening sometimes in Europe, which is, well, the flower is a part of the bigger painting. It's a tapestry of plants as opposed to all of this pressure on this one flower and people tend to buy a little bit more that way in the States versus Europe. Yeah. And I, it's absolutely true. And I think, unfortunately, some of the coolest plants with the, some of the coolest perennials with the greatest foliage flower really early, like hellebores and pulmonarias and heucarellas and things like that. They flower when most people aren't even in garden centers for most of the U.S., maybe in the South. It's it's different. But take a pulmonaria. That foliage is amazing. But that's all anyone's ever going to see in a garden center because they bloom so early. And yes, they have beautiful flowers. But not many people are shopping in, in March and the beginning of April in the northern half of the U.S., which is where they do the best. So they don't see the flowers and then they just see this pot of leaves in the garden center and don't realize that it's super cool to have it go from absolutely nothing 
to stalks with flowers on it to this beautiful foliage that lasts until a super hard frost. And, you know, that's that's three seasons of interest for a perennial, which is a lot. It's so true. That's what we're doing, Angela. We're fixing all these problems, people. I don't know if you knew this, but the whole intention of the podcast is me just fixing all these problems, talking to you 24-7 about plants and gardening. Let's let's skip over to – you had mentioned it earlier in the conversation, Monarda. And yeah. I know one of the varieties that popped out for me and you, one of the, the nurseries here that you supply some stuff to, I buy a lot from. So I was immediately like, oh, that's on the list. Add that to the list is Monarda Be Free. And yeah. we, we went through this line of like sort of small Monardas that got very, very, very compact. But this seems to be a variety that is a pretty well-behaved one in a container, but then eventually in a garden can realize a little bit of height. Yeah. So I secretly buy all of the competitions varieties as well to put in my garden because I want to know. I want to know how they do. And some of those meatball Monardas, I'm not going to mention any uh, breeding houses that they come from, they don't even make it through the winter for me, which is bizarre because Monardas are hardy to zone three. So I don't know what they're doing. I think they get so many flowers all at once that they expend all of their energy and they don't grow. And that's my theory. They annualize themselves and then they don't come back the next year. What I've found that I've grown to love this BU series is that, you know, I have Jacob Klein all over my garden, which is taller than me and gets full of mildew, but I still, there are certain time of the year in my garden that it's perfection and I wouldn't not have it. But these are much more well-behaved. They do not run. They will spread, but not like a Jacob Klein or a raspberry wine where they're going to, you're going to be pulling them out in five years. They stay, you know, arms width you can hug them they get between we have one that's called believe that only gets about knee high and then we have be happy and be free and be pure and be true and the rest of them are sort of in the middle but there's the perfect size they're like echinacea sized and they don't bloom all at once so you get buds and flowers on the same plant so that the the hawk moths and the hummingbirds can visit them for about six weeks and they still have flowers on them. Plus, they don't get any mildew. So that's a plant that you have to grow to love. And that's something that I think we sent samples out about six years ago to growers. We just now have some growers saying, you know what? This really is the best. And the Chicago Botanic Garden is doing a Minarda trial right now. And ours, our, ours are the best because they are looking for garden plants. They're not looking for something that's 18 inches tall and in full bloom at a garden center. These are never going to be that, which is sad because people will walk by them and go to the ones that look like mums. Mm. But mm. You're so problem. right. The mum the mom parallel is, is very unfortunately true in the way a lot of them look. And then, as you said, I've seen some of the exact same problems with them that they just fail um, for whatever genetic weakness that is in the plant over winter. I would not be doing my job if I didn't talk to you about echinacea. Now, I will also admit to you, Angela, that I might be experiencing something called echinacea fatigue, which is which is, which is is gripping the nation, or a global pandemic. It's one of the two people. I'm very confused between which of the two it's the problem. But echinacea, you have uh, one in the series, I believe it's Prairie Mama something, I believe, Angela. 
that did get my oh, the meta mama. That's it. That's it. It did get my attention immediately when I saw it in one of the catalogs. Talk to me a little bit about where echinaceas are at and those varieties in particular. It's the same story, actually. <laughs> it's um so we were one of the first companies, actually, I worked for the Chicago Botanic Garden, a little bit of history, and Orange Meadowbright was the first orange that was on the market. Now, these happen in, in nature. So Echinacea al, uh, purpurea alba and Echinacea paradoxa, which is the yellow cross in nature. So you can get orange. And Dr. Jim Ald at Chicago Botanic Garden found that out. And so he, he was on a quest to make Orange. The Saul brothers were on the same quest. So they all came out at the same time and everyone was so excited. Well, Echinacea paradoxa is a really hard plant to grow in a regular garden soil. It wants to grow in rocky outcroppings in the Ozarks. So it wants to be dry. And Echinacea purpurea is not like that. It's uh, You can put it in just about anything and it'll do fine except pure clay. So all of those orangish colors sort of had not very long lives. And um, I don't know what happened, but they started going back and putting more purpurea and purpurea alba in the crosses. And so it's made them a little bit more longer lived. But the same thing is happening with those as is happening with the Minardas. So like with the Minardas, I'm buying everybody's echinaceas because <clears throat> all the ones, especially that are sold at the chain stores, I want to know how they do. So I pick them up whenever I go shopping. They don't make it through the winter for me. They bloom themselves to death. So I think a problem with echinacea breeding is that we're breeding for the pot in the garden center, and that's it. And it's discouraging people because they're not surviving. And horticulturists know that echinacea are not super long-lived plants to begin with. They only live five to seven years, and then they seed around to protect themselves and make babies. And so if you had an orange one, you'll end up with pinks and whites and if you're lucky, another color, and people think that they revert it. And so we get emails all the time saying, oh, my plant reverted, it's pink now. I'm like, no, you probably just lost the original plant. And these are your seedlings. And so there's a whole education process behind Echinacea as well. But I've got to tell you, I've lived in two different gardens, each of them eight years in the last 20 years. And I've brought some of the echinacea with me from my first garden, which was in Baltimore, Maryland, in clay soil, all the way up to Massachusetts, where the soil is like sandy chocolate loam and we have terrible winters and they're still alive. So there are coneflowers that live. Um, and I appreciate the ones that look more like coneflowers and are the size of Echinacea purpurea, which is the purple coneflower, more than I appreciate one that is six inches tall. Because to me, being a horticulturist and a designer, I don't want to have to plant an echinacea like a bedding plant. I want to sporadically place them through my borders. I had someone ask me, because I, I showed a picture of one of the, the double scoop of echinacea. And they said, oh, I have that. But it's just, it, it's not very tall will it get taller? Hmm. And my, my answer was, well, no. Yeah. What, what were you expecting? It, it's a very small plant. As you said, it does in some ways closer resemble like an old school bedding plant. 
that you would yeah. just be like, okay, out with the beddings, in with the new beddings. It's a very uh, 1880 to 1905 English approach to, <laughs> to large-scale estate right. gardening. Right, and but they're too expensive. <laughs> that's it. So, so which are there varieties now that you have in your line that you like as more of a larger or healthy or reliable perennial? I love the whole Meadow Mama series. So the reason we came up with those was for that, like I said earlier in the conversation, the the grower that is focusing on selling to landscape designers and contractors. And what we discovered, because they were going to get bigger, I will say that, they were going to get, you know, waist high, some of them, which to me, is not too big for a perennial, but for some people, it's too big. Um, How crazy I, is that, I, Angela? How crazy, crazy is that that we're talking about waist waist high yeah. is too big for a perennial? Yeah. That's nuts. Right. Exactly. So, but what we discovered. So here's the grow it to to love it theory coming into play again. What we discovered was these actually look great in a one gallon pot in flower as well, and then when you put them in the garden, they double in size. So it's like the Minardas for the size, you know, as to how they progress and age, but the coneflowers are still covered in flowers. So I got to tell you, Sweet Meadow Mama is one of my favorite coneflowers of all time. And people call me the coneflower queen because I've been around coneflowers for almost 20 years and all the introductions. And I will still say that that is my favorite. All right, you're having right. we're we're having to find a, a flat a flat of it sent to me, Angela. <laughs> that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna we're gonna work with somebody. We're gonna make Absolutely. something happen. So <laughs> let's hit the very last one here because there is one in particular that I saw, and you know sometimes people in the in the gardening world, if you guys are people that talk about plants, I don't know where you talk about them. Maybe with yourself, maybe in public, maybe on Facebook, maybe on Instagram, maybe crazy Uncle Larry shows up. I don't know. I hate nothing more than when someone says sedum and then just sort of dismisses it as like oh well whatever sedum iris you know it's just this whole like we're gonna lump an entire genus of plants together angela and just pretend like there's nothing new or exciting going on it's just sort of stupid to me it's just dumbed down logic i saw a sedum called sapphire yes how do you feel about that plant i mean the images of it look spectacular and especially as someone in a, a southern climate garden, sedum to me, they fill a really important role here for late flower interest when so many other things are tired and the sedum are just coming into their best. Like, like how does sedum work into it? How you see what you're doing? I love sedum. So they can take incredibly dry. They can take regular garden soil. They bloom really late. They're great late food for the bees. Um, so I, I love them. I've always been enamored by the purple ones and always been so disappointed that they wouldn't grow no matter where I lived. Even when I lived in Chicago, when I lived in Baltimore, when I lived here, they would always just be crap, total crap. So our line of sedums, which are the Mojave Jewels, actually come from the Postman. Do you remember that variety? Mm -hmm. Okay, so they were found by a postman in Belgium which is fascinating. He decided that that plant wasn't great. And he took his entire backyard, which is like a townhouse lot in Belgium and turned it into a sedum field. And so sadly, he was not a healthy guy. He died about five years ago. And our breeder 
AB cultivars, who does most of the coneflowers and the heleniums and minardas, bought his breeding. And so we've been selecting for the past five years, maybe more than that. It was before he was gone that we had been selecting. But um, so we came up with those three varieties. Now, sapphire is a completely different plant. It's like a little round meatball. And the foliage just looks chalky blue, like you would imagine almost like shark skin with a blue tint to it. But on days where the sun is setting or coming up in the morning, it has this iridescent purple to it. So it's really fabulous. And the flowers are light pink. Um, and then ruby is the one that everyone is in love with, which has the black foliage and the red flowers. I actually poo-pooed diamond for the first couple of years until I had it I've had it for three years now, and it's now my favorite just because that is a plant that my 18-year-old can run over and it still doesn't die. So it stands up. It doesn't flop. I have it planted in a bed that is complete sand that's underneath a silver maple in between the properties of my house and my neighbors that I can't get anything but um, purple love grass to grow in, and it is the most fabulous thing ever. So I love them all for very different reasons, but sapphire definitely has that perfect pot look that is going to sell in the garden center and then is going to be this wonderful sort of rounded little shrub and you know only gets about 12 inches tall but it's really nice do you so ever, probably, they're so different it's they're each different do you ever have any interaction with like garden center buyers directly where because I'm, I'm going to talk about a garden center that will remain nameless it's a nameless garden center but I was in it recently and I walked over and I saw they had some sedums brought in and literally it was Autumn Joy, mm. Ogon, and Blue Spruce. Oh no. These three sedums, folks, for those of you that don't know, if you're not playing the home botanical and horticultural gardening game, have been on the market. For nearly my entire life, probably. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and it's just when I see them, Autumn Joy has a lot of issues with splitting and falling. And Blue Spruce yep. has got a lot of fungal potential issues and warmer climates with a little bit of humidity. Same goes for Ogon. These are not the best. These are not the best. Do you ever go into garden centers and, and have that experience talking directly to the buyers? Where you're, How do you handle that moment if you see that's the kind of product line they're currently bringing in? I do locally. So we have actually a garden center that's literally I can walk to and they sell only perennials and annuals. And um, what's interesting is the reactions. I, I was like, okay, come to my garden. You can walk, you can come, you can see, they know who I am. They've heard of plants Duvaux. They've heard of our plants, but if they can't buy them from Walter's gardens, which is the only place that they buy inputs, they don't buy it. So again, it goes back to that ease of ordering. So, um, which some of the big companies like Walters and Ball and Syngenta have done such a great job of making it so easy to order plants that it's a one-stop shopping and it's online. They don't even have to get out of their chair, which is unfortunate. Um, we started advertising in garden center magazine for that very reason to reach the garden center buyers and that's one of the main reasons that we exhibit in uh, ohio at the cultivate show because it's a lot of garden center buyers because yeah i don't think you'd be amazed at how many garden center buyers come through and just last year didn't realize there was a double echinacea 
We, we, amazing. No, I, well, uh, I mean, I, as someone who interacted with hundreds of independent garden centers, Angela, I'll be kind and say there's nothing you could say that would surprise me. It, it, it is very much, folks, for you guys to, and you know, we talk about this a lot, that it was one of the reasons why we started to offer plant collections, curated garden collections that I'm offering, because I have this very big world of plants that I, I sort of exist within. And it was very frustrating for myself for so long uh, with a professional wholesale nursery trying to get plants into the market space in a very niche category of conifers and maples. And then even now, some of the plants like you and I are talking about, what pains me a little bit is if someone listening to our conversation right now, Angela, if they have one of those garden centers that we're talking about that has only Autumn Joy and Blue Spruce and Ogon, and then what? Then what do these folks do? You know, they're like, we want to do, we want to do good. We want to do good, but we can't do good because these people aren't enabling us to do good. How do, what, what do we, how do we bridge that? I mean, is, do you feel that online sales clearly as the rest of the world is Jeff Bezos, AKA Lex Luthor can tell us that, (laughs) is that where it's going to, is that going to be the thing that bridges and solves that gap? Yeah, I think also we've tried to position ourselves with growers who work through the big company sales forces. Um, so a lot of our liner growers for perennials and shrubs, they sell, they don't have sales forces. So they work through ball brokers or Syngenta brokers or McCutcheon brokers. And those are the people that are going to the garden centers with the order book or sending them an email every week saying, here's what's available, click and dump it in the cart and we'll ship it to you. So we're really trying to make it easier. But a lot of times what happens is if there's competitive breeding, and I'm not saying there there is in sedums, although there's some really cool stuff coming out of Walter's Gardens now. So I expect that that's going to be the case in Terranova as well. Um, but it's whatever that salesman, again, is pushing. And a lot of times I was a perennial buyer for Homestead Gardens outside of D.C., yeah for years and we were only allowed to buy from certain people. And if we wanted something special, like I remember when Darwin first started selling and I would be like, okay, can you get me a flat of this and a flat of that? And well, if we only wanted a flat, we were going to be last in line. So, um, and I tried desperately to get all the new stuff in, all the cool new stuff in. And it's not easy for them because their bosses are telling them you have to buy from ball because not only do they make it easy, but they give them nine month terms. <laughs> and so they don't have to pay for it for nine months. I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm going to take the wheel slightly from Angela here for a okay. moment as we wrap up kids. And I'm going to explain something so maybe Angela does not have to. So let me explain for many of you to pull back a curtain on the way this works. So I'm running sales and marketing and many things of a large scale nursery. I have a customer who places an order. That order might come to me in, let's say, August, and we'll call it of the current year of 2020. We then start to put things in action, right? So in our case, field-grown production. So, you know, we flag some stuff for them. We're 
were out there looking at the best of the best at that time of year and saying, okay, we're, we're going through our forecast and we're allocating and we're doing all that process. And we've got people, I know this is hard for everyone to believe, who we pay to do all of this, right? Or I'm doing it or someone's, or somebody's getting paid to do all this, right? So that, that ball is in motion. Then that order over the dormant season is, in our case, either machine dug or hand dug, depending upon what the variety it is and what where we're going, what the size of the plant is. So we're now doing that, right? So we're, we're putting in labor. Clearly, that's how you have to do it, right? You can't do it with a magic wand. Awesome if we could. But then we take the plant and we prep it and we heal it in and we get it ready. And then we put it in our, our shipping area where we're getting ready. So we're still, we're, we're, we're going. Now, keep in mind at this point, we've only gotten an order. We haven't received a penny. Okay, we don't have gotten money, people. That's a that's a bit of a problem. Okay. So no money has exchanged hands at this point. So now the plant goes on a truck. We say goodbye to it. We say, we love you. Bye. Okay, now we may have, in our case, grown that plant for seven years. It is on its way to its destination, parts unknown. Then we may not receive payment based upon our terms with that customer for another 90 days by the time they receive it. So that order might have come to me in August. We dug the plant in January or February. We shipped the plant in April. And we may not receive payment till July of the next year. We've gone 11 months in the cycle with not a penny. This is a problem. There's a real curtain pullback for those of you that didn't know. So how do we deal with that part of it, Angela? How do we deal with that, right? I have to imagine from your perspective in working, you know, in this really interesting role that you have and getting people excited about new plants and doing all that, that business side of it are where is the grower's head in a case like I just described? It's on the side of, I don't want to pay my bills for as long as I don't have to pay my bills, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, it's tough. That's the thing I think that we compete against the most. Being independent and not being associated with one of the, of the big breeding companies. There's also, take it a step further, we license Plug Connection, which sells to Altman Plants, which is one of the biggest Home Depot suppliers on the West Coast. They don't pay you for your tissue culture input until they sell the plant at Home Depot. So it gets worse. That That is really a challenge, right? So where do you think online fits in? Where do you think that that moves, right? Are, are more growers more considering selling directly to consumer? Um, how do you think that evolves? Because clearly it's got to be a big part of the evolution one way or the other. Oh, I know that if I had the ability to sell plants from our website and I actually had plants to sell, I'd be shipping plants every day. So I think all of the big growers, um, the Southern Living Collection, the Sunset Collection, Monrovia, First Editions, uh, Bloom and Easy, all the big brands are now selling online and none of them have ever looked back. And most of them started this year or last year and they say it's the best thing they've ever done. So for consumer to be able to just go and buy it, that's what they want. I mean, that's what we all want, right? I'm looking for greenhouse benches and 
when someone puts me through the rigmarole of having to go through a broker or do whatever, I don't want that. I want to click, put it in the cart, give them my credit card and say when it's coming. And that's what consumers want. So I think every big wholesale nursery is going to have to do that. And some of the liner growers are doing it now. Emerald Coast Growers has Santa Rosa Gardens, and that's their whole retail arm where they're selling four-inch pots, which is a great size for consumers. And sometimes we put stuff in there first just to see how it does. And if consumers buy it, then they'll grow 20,000 of them. So it's a great outlet for stuff like that, especially new things. Well, and as we close here, what is the thing you're the most excited about from a plant perspective? Even something that's maybe not on the market right now, but you know is coming. You've already tempted me with this anemone that uh-huh. we can't have for two years. I'm sure you have something else. What is it either? Is it a plant? Is it a trend of something? Like, what are you really excited about moving forward? Hmm. One thing. Well, it doesn't but, have to be one. I mean, obviously, Angela, we have expansive, long-form conversation here. You can, you can, you can wax poetic about as many as you would like. I think the one plant I'm the most excited about is a metasequoia that we have. That's called Soul Fire. It's yellow and it doesn't burn. It's amazing. It's like a beacon in your backyard and it just glows. And it was actually found by one of my classmates at the University of Delaware. He's got a wholesale, a re-wholesale nursery now. That is one of the most exciting plants I've seen in a long time. And there have been a few that have come out and nothing compares to this. So talk about an amazing improvement on something that's already on the market and a plant that can be planted just about anywhere, that can be planted as a street tree, that can take water, that can take heavy soils. I mean, that's a all around useful plant. And I think going to be a very successful introduction. Is so the, that's my plan. And what's the improvement on that over like uh, Gold Dawn, Gold Rush, Ogon, some of the other metasequoias? Is, is it the burning issue primarily when the plant is young that it doesn't burn as much? That and the fact that it stays gold. It's still yellow now. Oh, got it. And they turn green. Yes. So it, it's the persistence of the yellow foliage. Which, and, which uh, for those of you that don't know, the Metasequoia has a fascinating history in itself. It was sort of lost to the world at one point, rediscovered, then got into cultivation. And now there has been a lot of introduction. It's a it's a difficult plant at times because people just don't know it as well as they should. But a lot of, uh, again, this this strikes me as a plant that will end up in production probably on the West Coast, would you say? I mean, is that a plant that is it, at some point yeah. going to be Oregon bound for production? It's already in Oregon, um, the starter plants, but there will be people all over growing it. Finished. Yeah. See. That, see, which is really awesome. Okay. Anything else? It, it felt like you were going to say something else that you're excited about. Oh, I was going to say from the same guy, we have a columnar, truly columnar metasequoia. So when I worked at Connor Powell, I have to tell you why I love metasequoia so much. The owner of the company, who's now deceased, actually got some of the seed that was brought over by the National Arboretum on the plant collecting trip to bring metasequoia back. So the entire nursery at Connor Pyle was surrounded by 50-year-old metasequoias. And they're just the most amazing tree. And so I've always had this love for them. Um, And this 
columnar one is called Urban Spire, and it can be used as a street tree. It also allows someone who has a city garden or a smaller property to have a meta sequoia because, as you know, they can get quite large. And so we have some really, I think it's fun to have really different versions of something that people are maybe afraid of, but this now might allow them to have it. So the so, yellow makes it super exciting and the columnar form makes it something that everyone can fit into their garden. So is it truly fastidious? I mean, are we talking like real vertical, like branching on it, or is it just a tight, compact, it's upright just, form? Yeah, it's just tight. So it's probably still going to get 12 feet wide, but that's not huge. You know, that's tiny for a meta sequoia. And for those of you wondering, people, the meta sequoias can get enormous. It's one of those, you know, right? It's one of the, yeah. the giant 20, trees of the universe. Feet. Yeah. So that, that's, yeah. that is very interesting. Angela, I have to tell you, I think this was a great conversation. We covered a lot of, lot of topics on many, 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 many things. But what we mostly walked away with is you'll be sending me some plants. That's what we Absolutely. mostly walked away with people was that. <laughs> for sure i have a whole patio full of plants i will go out and take inventory and let you know what i have uh, that would work for you i walk the cross ties of these old abandoned rails Wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own And I try to empathize with all they bear There's something about the sun that brings me back to life It's just like staring in your eyes and I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here All I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way I never want to leave this state of Not for me to decide 
Oh, 